As we keep being told by the mainstream media, Britain is in the middle of a pandemic. It's a controversial term, as some people think we should be focusing on the cases causing the pinging, not the pinging itself. However, the term does point to an obvious inconsistency in government policy. They've said we can reopen the economy because vaccines means infections are less of a problem. Yet, at the same time, the mere possibility that one has been infected means one has to isolate for 10 days. It doesn't really make any sense. I'll be speaking to a scientist about how to solve the problem. As it's a Friday, I'm also delighted to be joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? Michael, I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well. Spent today preparing the show in the garden. I cannot complain. A bunch of other great stories for you tonight. We're going to be talking about Dawn Butler's ejection from Parliament, Stephen Yaxley-Lennon, aka Tommy Robinson, losing in court, and a rare victory for renters over landlords. Britain's pandemic has continued to cause chaos with over 618,000 people told to self-isolate by the COVID app in England and Wales over the past week. Now that is inconvenient for everyone involved. It's also had a severe impact on the nation's economy. Now that impact has included dozens of councils suspending bin collections, many small businesses having to close, and most visibly, empty shelves in some of Britain's supermarkets. You now, those empty freezers, partly that could have something to do with the heat wave we've experienced. People are also saying that Brexit could have something to do with the lack of goods on certain shelves. But it is undoubtedly also um, because absences in food distribution companies reached 20% last week. In response, the government has announced some workers in the sector will be exempt from isolation if pinged. Instead, they'll be tested daily. So long as they test negative, they can continue going to work. This is Environment Secretary George Eustace explaining the move. Well, we recognise uh, there are some uh, staff absences in the food supply chain. So what we're announcing is uh, for the, the top sort of 400 or so sites, things like supermarket depots uh, and some of the key food manufacturers, we're going to change the system and enable them to test to return to work. So somebody who is contacted in future by test and trace or is pinged will be able to have daily contact testing uh, for seven days and able to carry on working provided their test remains negative. There will be probably, um, you know, close to sort of 10,000, possibly more staff that are working in these types of environments. We're talking principally here, the supermarket depots, the distribution centers, uh, where all of the work happens to get food out to those uh, supermarkets. It doesn't include stores itself, because that would be uh, a big departure from the approach we have now. Uh, but certainly this is going to, to go a very long way to getting the food supply chain working. That was George Eustace explaining how the rules surrounding contact tracing will be changed to keep food on supermarket shelves. Of course, many will wonder whether he's coming at the problem from the wrong angle. They'd suggest the problem isn't so much that too many people are getting pinged, but there are too many cases. Of course, if you get pinged, that's because you've been near a case. If we didn't have so many cases, we wouldn't have so many pings. On the number of cases, we had some new data released today from the Office for National Statistics. Um, that's on the prevalence levels of COVID-19. As you'll know, if you watch this show regularly, the ONS data, the ONS statistics, that's not people who turn up to get tested because they're symptomatic. This is a survey of the general population. It should be very accurate with a representative 
sample of how many people have COVID. So they estimate that in the week up to the 17th of July in England, one in 75 people had COVID-19. In Wales, that was one in 210. In Northern Ireland, one in 170. And in Scotland, one in 80. Now, those figures for England alone would mean 741,700 people were positive uh, or were COVID positive last week, which puts the 600,000 figure of people being pinged in some perspective. There is a lag in the ONS data. Um, the NHS data is more up to date. And some people have taken uh, you know, spirit from the fact that today, actually, cases are down. They have been going down for the past couple of days. There were 36,000 cases today, which is down from a peak of 55,000 on Saturday and 52,000 on the same day last week. Now, personally, I wouldn't get too excited about this. I think it would be dangerous to overinterpret that drop. It looks to me that this is the, the Euro peak sort of trailing off. The people who caught it at the final or caught it watching the Euro final, those people have now gone through the system. I would expect there to be some kind of Freedom Day peak down the line. Whatever does happen, though, what is certain is that COVID cases will remain very high for a long time unless there is a dramatic shift in government policy. To discuss what this all means for self-isolation, I'm joined now by Alex Crozier, who's a researcher at UCL, who's published on the use of testing and isolation in Britain's COVID response in the British Medical Journal, the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine and The Guardian. Alex, faced with a pandemic, is it time for Britain to change its self-isolation rules or should we focus on pushing cases down? Everything gets very hard when um, cases are so high. But I think, like you said, the only thing that really is going to, to reverse that exponential growth now is radical change in government policy, as in realistically a return to step two or, you know, possibly step one, um, a lockdown. And, you know, I, I don't really know whether anyone wants that or is comfortable with that or is that of or, or that is of benefit. So certainly we do need to reevaluate where we are in the epidemic. Um, vaccination has changed everything. Transmission while while concerning is no longer as as great a concern as previously and i think now yeah we, we need to sort of move away i think from the sort of full-scale national emergency sort of response and thinking and more more towards re-evaluating harms rebalancing re those harms and we now have the tools to do that with lateral flow tests i think there was a, a promising preprint out today about um, lateral flow test use in schools uh where instead of um, isolation uh, contact, school, school contacts were, uh, took a lateral flow test every, every day for seven days. And while, you know, this trial is, is really quite complex, um, so it wasn't, there wasn't this clear change, but there, wasn't, there also wasn't a marked increase in transmission. And so they were able to basically prevent kids, you know, basically mass quarantine of, of children with, without really noticeably increasing transmission. And so that is of significant benefit. And, and then if you basically apply that to um, the, the rest of society, then there is, there's clearly benefits to be had on, on a social level, on an economic level, and, and on a health level. And I, I think it's, it is time we, we move towards such a response. That study that you, you mentioned there from Oxford University has, has made waves today in, in the media. I've heard it mentioned a lot. I think we can see a, a headline here from, from the Times right up of it. And as people are suggesting, what this study claims to show is that replacing quarantine in schools with daily lateral flow tests could mean 
kids miss less school and that we don't get much of an increase in cases. People are suggesting we could apply this now to the rest of society. It has, however, been criticised by a number of scientists as well. Um, Deepti Gudasani, who we had on Monday's show, said in response to this Oxford study, in essence, we can't conclude anything at all from this trial because of its extremely poor design. It literally tells us nothing at all. Also worth noting that most of this trial is based on pre-Delta periods and also when infection rates in children were much lower. John Deeks, who leads Birmingham University's Test Evaluation Research Group. We've also had him on the show. He tweeted, daily testing in school study report is out, but presentation by BBC here is spin, spin, spin. The trial failed to show convincing reductions in school absence and could not rule out large increases in COVID transmission. Sensitivity of the test was 53%. Alex, I saw on Twitter you were defending this study. Why do you think the critics of it are, are wrong? There's a, a thing in um, medical evaluations called equipoise, which is where basically there's harms on both sides. And so the harms of isolating healthy children are, are significant. We've had school closures. We've had basically mass quarantine of healthy children. And so one of the sort of certainties that was found from this trial was that only 2% of, of contacts in, in school tested positive or under 2%. And so when you think about that, then, then you actually have to recognize that 98% of contacts being isolated in school are being isolated unnecessarily. And, th and, then, and then we have to consider that COVID is in the vast majority of children a relatively mild disease. Like I sort of said earlier, we have to sort of reevaluate our response here and cases are going wild. Um, and is it really proportional from September all the way through to next spring to continue mass quarantine of healthy children? You know, these sort of cluster randomized controlled trials are, are very hard with testing to produce sort of really obvious and significant data. But the, 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 the very sort of nature that the fact that they didn't find an increase in transmission, but they did manage to reduce um, total time off school, I think personally is very promising. And yeah, there, there will be critics. So, so, so Professor Deeks there obviously said uh, the test has 53% sensitivity, but I think that figure is basically meaningless to, to be quite honest so to to start with we, we are we are really what the purpose of testing is to interrupt transmission and so in a in a yeah we have these sensitivity figures and they're, they're normally useful but when you're in a trial which is actually evaluating onwards transmission that is the primary endpoint not um, the sensitivity of a test and also so viral load obviously goes up and down like that um, and so the, these these tests were done not on the optimal day that the PCR test that was comparing to, sorry, was not done on the optimal day to really get a sensitivity figure. So I just think that figure is, is somewhat meaningless and, and shouldn't sort of be broadcast, I, I don't think. But yeah, I think it, it comes down to an argument of how much do we value children's education? How much do we value children having support structures in school? You know, it's, it's not just about education and exam grades and things like that. People, children go to school to, to receive food often, to stay away from abusive parents and to have fun with their friends. So, you know, if we can reduce the, the total time spent off school, I think that's really beneficial. And not just for the UK, but also for the rest of the world, you know, UNICEF, and the World Health Organization say that, that, that school closures and mass quarantine has had huge, huge harms that will go on for decades, basically. And so if, if there are ways to mitigate those harms, I think we should use them. And, and we do now have the tools to do that. 
I've seen on on your Twitter at Science Shared. I do recommend a a follow. You've been sort of positing as well as you have in in your published work, sort of different ways to handle self isolation and disease control in in the long term. Obviously, this is a huge topic of debate now. Many people suggesting this is going to become an endemic disease. Huge questions over whether or not vaccination makes it a mild disease. Huge disagreements when it comes to to long COVID among children who, as we understand, are not going to be vaccinated. Thinking sort of in in the longer term, in the months and even years ahead. I mean, how, from your perspective, is is contact tracing and self isolation going to play a role? Is there a point at which, from your perspective, we just end contact tracing altogether? We just say this is now just like any old seasonal flu and no one should have to self-isolate unless they're actually sick or or, or will there still be a role for, for contact tracing and, and the like? There will become a point uh, at some point in the future when when we drop sort of yeah sort of mass community-based testing and contact tracing. I don't think we're, we're quite there yet. Um, I think there's a long way to go and, and we certainly have to get through this winter first I think. But yeah it, it, it's more about I'm hesitant to use the word endemic. It's, it's not really endemic yet. It, we're not really at that equilibrium, but we are at really high cases and they're not coming down and they're not going to come down in Europe or, or anywhere in, in the world really at, at any point soon. And so we, we have to basically accept that situation and, and adapt the response uh, with regards to that rather than, I think at the moment we're sort of, it all comes back to, I think, that not moving away from the sort of emergency response and we're still sort of focused on PCR testing and, and testing every contact. And there's now a sort of, I mean, I've been seeing it for months personally, but I think there's there's now a growing sort of uh, movement to move to rapid tests for symptomatic cases. And so speed is really key for this virus. So Delta variant often spreads from person to person in two, three or four days. And so a test where you're waiting for the result for 24 hours is somewhat meaningless. And we know the symptom profile is very different for the for the in a vaccinated population and for the with the Delta variant. So we need to be testing for the full range of symptoms and we can't really do that with PCR. And so it's all about sort of accepting the realities of where we are and going with a sort of harm reduction approach and, and you know, aligning sort of testing and, and, and responses with people's lived realities rather than, you know, this, this hypothetical sort of perfect sensitive test. But it takes days to get the results back, I think, is we basically need to move away from that and, and accept where the population is, what people really want, how long this is going to go on for. So we, realistically, probably at least spring uh, next year. And also we now have other respiratory viruses to deal with. So due to the lockdowns, we have waning immunity. And so RSV is currently raging hard. It's, it's ripping through health services and, and, and other places. Flu is expected to come back hard in the winter. And so the winter, I think, will really be challenging. And so, yes, we need to control COVID transmission to basically make everything easier. But it's not quite as easy as just let's get rid of COVID and, and all our problems go away. There's, we're now in sort of the realms of complex disease ecology. And, and, you know, I don't think it's quite clear that just controlling COVID with a lockdown is, is the best way forward. Alex Crozier, thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's, it's really good to have different perspectives on, on this show. I know there is a huge plurality of, of opinion in the scientific community at the moment in, in terms of what to do. So it's, it's brilliant yeah. to have you on. Thanks for having me. Aaron, your thoughts on the pingdemic? It's a very controversial term. I've seen lots of people on Twitter sort of saying, do not call it a pingdemic. The problem if, is cases, there is not a pingdemic, there is an epidemic. Is it is it a word that you're comfortable with using? Obviously, you had nothing to do with the title of this show. Should should I have included it on the thumbnail? Well, when I when I saw the title, Michael, I was very worried. I thought that <laughs> we've got a we've got a Tisky cancellation masterclass incoming. 
but no, I think I think I think you're also talking about two substantially different things. So there's the pandemic, and there is the fact that we have this techno political response to the pandemic, which isn't a lockdown, where lots of people receive notifications, push notifications through their phones, uh, and that in itself causes a multitude of problems, and, and we need to call it something. And with uh, with a great deal of uh, poetic creativity, it's been called a pandemic. You can call it what you like. I don't think it means you're belittling the fact that 130,000 people have died from the COVID-19 pathogen in this country, and of course, millions worldwide. I think, so the title for me, Michael, don't worry. You know, you're very good at this. You know, you tune out of being cancelled. I mean, sometimes I think you're wrong, but you're good at tuning out. And that in itself was a skill in the 21st century. In terms of the, um, I wouldn't have done it, but whatever. It's not. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not a cardinal sin. In terms of the the, the pandemic, in terms of this techno political response, I mean, what I find really interesting, Michael, is this: uh, the exception that's being given out to these ten thousand food supply chain workers. This again, you know, sometimes you know, I wish we could interview Slavoj Žižek to say this. Sometimes you get these moments where they pull back the curtain and they say, "These are the people who create value in society." Uh, logistics workers, food supply chain workers are, are, are huge examples of that. Care workers, cleaners. Without these food logistics workers, none of us would be able to get food. Society would collapse very quickly. And so it's a really revealing thing for me, Michael. The exceptions being made for, for big, big, uh, big dealing city lawyers is not being made for bankers. It's not even being made for Instagram influencers and celebrities. It's being made for the people that all of us really depend on, which is food supply chain workers. And guess what? Many of those people are on minimum wage or on less than living wage. Many of them are working in poverty. Uh, many of them aren't saving up to uh, have a pension. Many of them can't afford to have children. Many don't own their own home or don't have secure tenancy. So really, really revealing. The people our society needs the most, and we know that because we've literally got the government saying the rules which apply to all of you don't apply to them, are the very same people who, on the other hand, are told, well, you're only worth £10 an hour because your job isn't that important. Which one is it? As a socialist, of course, we know it's the latter. In terms of also the broader points about the pandemic, I made some notes here. I thought it was a very good guess, Michael. As, as ever, you, you've you've uh, you've fished around very well. I thought some really revealing points for me as well. You know, coming out of this crisis moment, and we are out of a crisis moment. I don't think we're going to go back to eighteen hundred people dying a day unless there's a new variant, which which can happen, right? I don't think people can discount that, but it, it seems unlikely at the moment. Uh, I think you know, I think we had eighty die uh, the other day. I think that's bad enough. I think that was also totally unforeseeable uh, at the beginning of twenty twenty, um, and would have been rightly called a disaster. But if you look at, for instance, an area like tourism, you may now have a situation where people book holidays and so on and so forth, and they get a ping the day before they go or whatever. And, and you might, might say, so what? But that's fine for a year. You know, we can put large bits of the economy on ice for a year. You can't do it for five, 10 years, which is effectively what that so what is saying. You need a different response to that. Now, that's not to say we let everybody have it, of course, but I think it's that the policymakers, technocrats, business people, you know, politicians, community leaders, etc., uh, you know, influencers, thought leaders to say, well, look, how else can we manage this in an effective way, um, which doesn't do that kind of damage. Now, I've always said, look, we put public health, of course, above the economy. But if you're willing to say, well, actually, I have no problem with effectively global tourism collapsing for a decade in a country like France or Italy, you know that's that's millions and millions of jobs, and it's it's no 
it's no exaggeration to say that would have huge, profound political and social, socioeconomic uh, consequences. You know, it would lead to things like political volatility, you know, the rise of political extremism and so on. I, I don't think that should be taken lightly. So that's so what is a really key point, Michael, because the stage we're entering now, uh, we, we, I think we could be in it for five years. And, and, you know, it's only when you actually step into it, you, you recognize that. It's easy to speculate. But looking at where we are now with the with the notifications and so on, not having the lockdowns, most people being vaccinated, clear distinction between the global north, the global south. There are big sectors, hospitality, like I said, tourism, where you think they've got no future unless we think about this in a really sophisticated, mature way. One more bit of information for you on on COVID, because it's I, I think it'll be a preview of what we'll probably be talking about next next Friday, which is the age breakdown that you get in the ONS statistics. It's often the most interesting part of their reports, and what this is showing at the moment, there are some signs of of hope in there, which is school age children cases among them is leveling off, albeit at a very very high rate. So two percent for for or, or of secondary school children were last week COVID positive. So that's it's a huge number, but leveling off. Obviously, the summer holidays are about to start, so lots of people will be looking to see if those rates decline. And then the big worrying part in that breakdown is ages year twelve to age twenty four. So that's essentially eighteen to twenty four. Last week, 3.5%, this estimate suggests, would have test positive, would have tested positive for COVID-19. Now, what happened on Sunday and isn't yet reflected in these um, statistics is clubs opened. So potentially you had a lot of people who were aged 18 to 24 dancing in enclosed spaces with 3% of them having COVID-19. So we will be looking very closely to see in what direction that line goes over the next seven days. Britain's political system is pretty goddamn weird. We're a country which calls itself a democracy, but we have hereditary peers who can influence our laws. We think of ourselves as a modern nation, but legislation requires royal assent. And as Labour MP Dawn Butler discovered this week, we have a House of Commons where you can lie with impunity, but you get kicked out if you call someone else a liar. Madam Deputy Speaker, poor people in our country have paid with their lives because the Prime Minister spent the last 18 months misleading this House and the country. Peter Stefanik from the CWU has over 27 million views on his online, and let me tell you some of them. He highlights that the Prime Minister said the economy has grown by 73%. It's just not true. Reinstated nurses bursary, just not true. There wasn't an app working anywhere in the world, just wasn't true. Tories invested 34 billion in the NHS, not true. The Prime Minister said we have severed the link between infection and serious disease and death. Not only is this not true, Madam Deputy Speaker, but it is dangerous, and it's dangerous to line the pandemic. And I'm disappointed that the Prime Minister has not come to the House to correct the record and to correct the fact that he has lied to this House and the country over and over again. Order. I'm, I'm sure that the, um, the member will um, reflect on um, her words, just saying perhaps correct the record. Madam Deputy Speaker, what would you rather, a weakened leg or a severed leg? You know, at the end of the day, the Prime Minister has lied to this House time and time again. And it's funny that we get in trouble in this place for calling out the lie rather than the person lying. Order, order, order. Order. Can you re please, please reflect on your words and withdraw your remarks? 
Deputy Speaker, I've reflected on my words, and somebody needs to tell the truth in this House that the Prime Minister has lied. Under the power given me by Standing Order Number 43, I order the member to withdraw immediately from the House for the remainder of the day's sitting. I call Tom Randall. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker. On perhaps a slightly lighter note, I hope. That was Dawn Butler getting ejected from Parliament for repeating things said by Boris Johnson in the Commons and pointing out they weren't true. Dawn joins me now. Some of our audience, I imagine, will be surprised that you can get kicked out of Parliament for pointing out that what someone else said in Parliament wasn't true. Did it come as a surprise to you or were you were you quite aware that what you said there was going to get you you kicked out of the House of Commons? I knew that I was going to get kicked out. I know that it's parliamentary protocol, um, but it's it spans back to a time that, you know, Parliament can be very um, antiquated. It's got all these old sort of traditions, and this is one of them. And it spans back to a time where it was obviously a gentleman's club and people were quite honourable and you wouldn't dare lie to Parliament or mislead the House. And there was things you weren't allowed to do, so you weren't allowed to call people a coward or a git or a, a gutter snipe. You know, I mean, gutter snipe, things have changed a lot since those days. And I feel that it's really important that we highlight how Parliament works, but also the dangers of having somebody in power who doesn't tell the truth, because it leads to such corruption. And we've seen that. I mean, all of this is very orchestrated, you know, all of this lying, all of this stopping our democracy from functioning has been uh, Boris Johnson's um, ammo from the very beginning. And that's because they saw an opportunity to be as corrupt as they possibly could. I mean, if this was happening anywhere else in the world, the UK would be sending overseers to go and have a look at corruption in other countries. They siphoned off so much money for their mates and left this country like poorer. We've had 130,000 people die from COVID and some of those people didn't need to die. It's, it's shocking really what's happened to our democracy over the last 18, 19 months. And do you think more MPs should do what what you did, because on the one hand, obviously, it's harder to call Boris Johnson a liar because you might get kicked out of, of the House of Commons. On the other, what you said yesterday has got way more attention than it otherwise would because you broke this archaic code. So do you think more and more MPs should do a sort of I'm Spartacus thing and stand up and call Boris Johnson a liar until there's there's no one left in there? I think that would be amazing if that happened, just, just so that it would force Boris Johnson, who is our Prime Minister, to tell the truth. I mean, how basic is it that we're asking the Prime Minister to stop lying? And the thing is, he drags everybody else with him, you know, saying that the scientists have said quite categorically that we have severed the link between the vaccines and death and hospitalization just isn't true. And it's a dangerous lie because it makes people act a certain way, feeling that they're completely, completely protected when they are not. It's dangerous. You know, these lies are dangerous. It's not just about sort of embezzling money. You know, this is also people's lives that we're playing with. So it would be great if 
you know, MPs did that. It's not an easy thing to do. It's it's quite nerve-wracking. And, you know, when I was asked to leave and then I was then told I had to leave the building, I wasn't quite ready for that. So it wasn't an easy thing to do, but I'm glad I did it and I don't regret it because somebody needs to, to, to point out that the Prime Minister comes to Parliament and lies and nothing's done about it. But I can't say that he lies in the very place that he's lying. Why should I stick by the rules? I mean, this is, again, the ammo of this government. They expect us all to stick by the rules that they don't respect they don't respect the rules. They don't stick by them. You know, there was a time if a minister was found guilty of bullying a civil servant, they would have to resign. Or if a minister was found canoodling in that, you know, in the office, they would resign. They would have their own self-respect to resign. None of that happens anymore. Nothing like that happens anymore. It's like all the rules have changed. We're living in this Alice in Wonderland topsy-turvy world. It makes no sense. And it's dangerous. The response to your your intervention on social media has been pretty overwhelming. Millions of views on, on the video. Lots of people surprised that you can get kicked out for, for saying you're lying. Lots of solidarity. What's the reaction been like in Parliament? And I suppose especially from your side, from from the Labour Party, have you got any, any messages of solidarity from, from Keir Starmer or anyone else on the front bench? Well, it's interesting to see, isn't it? It's interesting to see those who... Um are showing solidarity and support and those who, um, you know, are being obnoxious, uh, let's say, you know, on all sides of the house. I mean, I must say, like, the deputy speaker had no choice but to throw me out of parliament. You know, that's parliamentary protocol. So she had no choice to throw me out of, par uh, of parliament. And I'm, I'm cool with that. Um, you know, it would, you know, Michael, you know, I like to tell the truth. It would be nice to have a bit more support, not going to lie. Uh, but it's fine. At the end of the day, I, you know, put forward a new coronavirus bill highlighting the fact how authoritarian this government has become and how we can't afford for that to continue. I'm fighting uh, the government on um, the data grab that they're doing. And, you know, I'm working with lots of different people to do that. You know, Amnesty, Liberty, you know, the Good Law Project's doing absolutely phenomenal work. Um, Byline, you know, I'm working with lots of different people to, to highlight, you know, the, the dangers of this government. And that's fine. That's what the people, the good people of Brent, have elected me to do, and I will continue to to speak truth to power. That's what I'm here for. I'm not here for um, an easy ride. I'm I'm here to hold this government to account. And finally, Dawn, there'll be. I mean, I'm I'm sure almost everyone in our audience loved watching you stand up there and call out Boris Johnson for what he is. And you know, the fact that it got more coverage because you then got kicked out is is only a good thing. A cynic might suggest, or not. You don't have to be a cynic to suggest this, but the public doesn't seem to care that much that Boris Johnson is is lying. And so there will be some people who say, look, he might be a liar, but strategically pointing it out hasn't achieved much. So do we do we need to move on from calling Boris Johnson a liar? Or, or do you think that it, we just haven't tried hard enough? And, and if we do make a, an issue with the fact that he has a, a habit of telling untruths, that will, will ultimately um, end up being his downfall. 
So we know that it's baked into the Boris Johnson brand, right? And people bake in the fact that he lies and they're like oh yeah well you know he's always lied you know he got sacked from being a journalist for making up quotes we know he lies you know he got sacked I think in 2004 when he was a junior minister for lying so people like sort of say oh well it's all baked in he's a liar and it doesn't matter that much uh, to some but actually I think yesterday and the reaction has shown that there are a lot more people who actually don't approve of the fact that our prime minister is such a liar, that they can see the consequences of those lies, whether it be in the 130,000 people who have sadly died from COVID or whether it would be empty shelves in the supermarket. They can see that actually Boris Johnson's lies has consequences for all of us. I mean, we're not married to the guy, right? So thank God. So like, you know, if he wants to lie to his wife um, or his friends and family, yeah, that's his business. But he's in a position of power as the prime minister and he is lying to the country. And that's just not on. And I think people are like, well, actually, you need to stop lying um, or you need to step down as prime minister. And I think Peter... Um, uh, um, from the CWU has done a phenomenal job in sort of all of the research and ensuring that everything is fact-checked and just highlighting his lies. And it's quite interesting that what I said on the floor of the House yesterday has been fact-checked. And I think the fact-check people have said that the majority of what Boris Johnson has said is either, what did they say? Um, mistruths, or not factual, something like that, you know, <laughs> also known as a lie, <laughs> you know, he is lying. And I just think eventually that's dropping with everybody and he can't get away from, with it forever, can he? Maybe you can see what happens next time when you when you say what he said was mistruths and unfactual. I wonder if that gets you out, kicked out of the House of Commons. Um, Dawn, it has been an absolute pleasure um, being joined by you again on Tisky Sour. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. We'll be speaking to you soon, I'm sure. Maybe after Look you got kicked out for calling Boris Johnson a gutter snipe or, or something like that. <laughs> Look forward to it. Worth a try. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Um, we're going to have a quick break now to show some news from us. When we'll be back, we'll talk about victory for renters, a rare victory for renters, and Tommy Robinson being taken to the cleaners. Let me ask you a question. What were you doing 10 years ago? Here's what I was doing. Give me a guaranteed minimum income, abolish tuition fees, scrap all fucking debt everywhere. 20% VAT, you're being fleeced. Sit down and get these guys to pay their tax instead. You see, I met this guy called James, tall, very blue eyes, very smart, and we started thrashing out our ideas each week from a community radio station in South London. That was how Navarra Media started. And with the help of our supporters, we've expanded from something of a two-man band to a team of dedicated staffers. If you're watching this video, the chances are you've been a part of that journey, and we hope we've been a part of yours too. Whether you've been a listener since the old days, a tisky sour fanatic, or you just share the occasional article, if Novara Media is at all a part of your life, thank you. But here's the thing, we want to go even further. And to do that, we need your support. Unlike legacy media outlets, we are funded almost entirely by you. 
And that's the way we like it. It keeps us independent. It means we're not beholden to vested interests. It means we can stay focused on our mission to build a new media for a different politics. That's why over the next fortnight, we're trying to increase our monthly income by £8,000 a month. If you're not already a Navara Media supporter, head to navaramedia.com support and set up a monthly donation now. If you're already a supporter, we're asking you to increase your donation by just a few quid a month. If the last 10 years have taught us anything, it's that we can't have a different politics without a new media. That's why we're in this for the long haul. Are you with us? As I said on Wednesday's show, we've been completely overwhelmed by all, all the support we, we've had from this fundraising drive. So thank you so much um, if you've donated already, if you're already um, a, a regular donor, and also for, for many of your kind words on Twitter. We really do appreciate it. And we're very, very excited about Navarra Media continuing to grow in the weeks, months, and years, decades ahead. We're in it for the long haul. Next story. We talk about renting and landlords fairly often on this show, but it's very rarely to give you good news. Today, that changes. That's because as a report out today on NavarraMedia.com explains, a group of London renters who were screwed over during the pandemic have just won £19,000 from their billionaire landlord. Four housemates had organised during the pandemic to receive a 20% rent reduction due to income lost over the lockdown, they started a renters group with their neighbours to lobby their landlord, who was George Christodoulou, and he is a Monaco-based property magnate and 82nd richest man in Britain. This was a big, bad landlord. Now, this billionaire landlord refused. He told them to instead use their unspent lunch money to make up their arrears. But the last laugh was with the tenants. As reported by my colleague Rivka Brown, on Wednesday night, a housing tribunal approved Jordan Osserman, Mark Sutton, Foivis Dusos, and Daniel Mapp's request for a rent repayment order, or RRO, a little-known legal mechanism that since 2004 has meant renters can get back up to a year's rent if their landlord has failed to license a house in multiple occupation, or a HM. Oh. Though not unprecedented in itself, Wednesday's judgment is likely to trigger a chain reaction that will benefit not just this household, but the whole block. Summerford Grove Renters, an association of tenants living in properties owned by Christodoulou in Stoke Newington, North London, estimates that 50 further SGR households could be eligible for RROs, totaling half a million pounds. Osserman says he expects theirs will be the first of many wins to come. So in this situation, the landlord was able to say, no, I'm not going to give you any, any rent rebate over the pandemic. Unfortunately, landlords still have that in their power, but he had not registered the property correctly. He hadn't licensed it as a house of multiple occupancy. And now he could have to pay around half a million pounds to his various tenants, a big win for the renters, one of whom I spoke to earlier today. This is Jordan Osserman. I asked him about his expectations for this case and whether they were surprised by their victory. At the start of the process, we were just asking directly our landlord for a small reduction in rent um, to help out neighbours who were struggling with finances during the pandemic, who were losing income. Uh, we had no idea that it would go as far as it did. Um, we certainly weren't expecting to go to a tribunal fighting our landlord um, legally. Uh, but 
we were fairly confident that we had a good shot at this case. You know, we did our research and um, we worked with a lawyer who was uh, volunteering his time to help us out. So we, we knew we had a shot, but it was a really tough hearing. Um, the judge seemed quite unsympathetic to us. Um, and so I think it's really a testament to the work that we did, um, the Summerford Grove Ventures campaign as a whole, uh, in order to win the case um, that, that we did actually win. So yeah, I would say we were, um, you know, we had our fingers crossed, but we were pleasantly surprised with the outcome. This case was absolutely part and parcel of the work that Summerford Grove Ventures and London Renters Union have been doing. It, this wouldn't be possible without us having constituted the Summerford Grove Renters. I mean, basically, we started as a bunch of neighbors who were trying to help each other out during the pandemic. We became a formal organization and then joined the London Renters Union. And it was through that process and learning from what the London Renters Union has done, working with them to build skills in terms of how to like door knock, how to work with our neighbors, how to kind of organize collective action. It, it was all of that, that that made this case possible. So it, it absolutely wouldn't have happened otherwise. It can be pretty dispiriting being a renter and um, the government is against you. The laws are against you. Landlords are often against you. Um, but there are ways to organize and to fight back. Uh, there are organizations doing incredible work across the UK, in addition to the London, London Renters Union, groups like ACORN. Um, and also um, do your research, because oftentimes, as, as was the case for us, um, it required us spending a lot of time learning what rights we did have um, and pressuring our local council and pressuring other kind of, you know, power holders um, to act that that led to this success. So uh, I would tell fellow renters, I, I'm hoping that fellow renters will see our case as inspiration for their own struggles. That was Jordan Osserman, whose whose victory in this case is all the more impressive because, as he says, the law really is stacked in favour of landlords and against renters. It was also a particularly unusual situation in this case because there was multiple households with the same landlord. So in, in this country, we have a very distributed system where lots of people just have their one landlord. They don't know who they are. Quite difficult to organise against them. In this situation, I think there's about 70 households with the same landlord, which is why this can be used as a, a precedent to get to get other people this same same compensation. So very, very impressive campaign. Not a sign that the system isn't broken. Um, as I've already said, the renters weren't able to, to force um, the landlord to give them a deduction due to the pandemic. I want to show you another article from Navarra Media this week. This was by Aaron Bastani. It's an article with a great picture of Aaron and his dog Gino. And Aaron wrote about how, how moving from being a private renter to a homeowner made him realise how much the former was damaging his mental health. Aaron, it is a really great piece. Can you tell us about it? Well, yeah, thanks. I mean, it's um, it's very kind. It's had lots of positive feedback. It's important to say as well, Michael, it's not about, oh, if you get on the housing ladder, everything's fine. Uh, th that's why we have housing security in the title. Um, I lived in London for 15 years. I lived in, I think, about at least 15 properties over 15 years. I never had a home. The watchword of politicians since I've been an adult is community. But our housing model means that it's absolutely impossible for people in my situation, and I'm sure that applies to many of our viewers, to actually be involved in a meaningful community because you know that in a year or two, best case scenario, you'll be priced out and you have to leave. Uh, and so in terms of what it changed for me, I, I talk about how I, I hit a low point about seven years ago, just a confluence of things, 
lack of money, uh, PhD. I mean, look, you, you don't start a doctorate to earn money, but it was it was tough. It was things were getting really tough. Uh, broken relationship with an ex girlfriend didn't work out. Kind of went uh, EastEnders. You know, I ended up with my stuff outside the front door. And again, that's actually it's really important to say that was a function of us neither of us having that much cash and a very stressful situation and in London. You know, little things like having a spare bedroom where somebody can sort of, you know, let off steam or something. None of that existed. Broader support networks you would normally take for granted often aren't there because people are having to move into zone four, zone five. They're neglecting their friendships. The work can be stressful and so on. So that led to a broken relationship, money problems. And then my mum died, which was just really tough. So I really hit a kind of a rock bottom there. After about another year, I started taking antidepressants, uh, sertraline. It was more for anxiety than depression. It was the, the smallest dose, 50 milligrams, but it was transformative. It was utterly transformative. And then very quickly after taking that, super quickly, I sort of had the clarity about what I needed to change to, to help myself. One was to leave London. That doesn't mean everybody has to leave London. I think if you are very affluent, if you're rich, you can definitely enjoy London. If you're willing to go through the grind for certain reasons, Brilliant. If you've got family and friends there, I get it. But for us, the calculation didn't quite make sense because we wanted to have kids and our families are down here on the South Coast. So we moved. And then not long after, about a year later, we bought somewhere. Uh, we bought somewhere because my partner earns a lot more than I do. It's important to say this. At Navarro Media, everybody earns the same wage. Everybody earns the same wage. You have a pay ratio of one to one. She had two thirds of the deposit. I had one third from book royalties, not not huge money, but it meant we could buy a terrace house on the South Coast here in South Sea, which we, we never could have done in London. And the consequences of that were incredible, Michael, absolutely incredible. And I understood all of a sudden why all these quite affluent people really can't understand, can't comprehend, can't get in the shoes of generation rent. Now, it's not to say, you know, there are older people out there who still rent, of course, but we know that home ownership is, is just falling off a cliff now in terms of in terms of age uh, for younger people that just far less likely to be getting on the housing ladder than older generations and of course there's less social housing too so the option is to go into to the rental market and it's just such a weight came off my shoulder when i left that michael you know it, it took a couple of weeks and i realized wow, I can put something on the wall. I can actually change the, the surroundings I live in. I can actually make meaningful relationships with my neighbors and local businesses, knowing that I won't have to move in a year's time. And, and those aren't huge things to ask, Michael. Those aren't huge things to ask. And so it might seem that, oh, you're saying, well, you had a home of your own. It's kind of like a Thatcher, I think. Not at all. I think secure tenancy would do would do exactly the same thing. More social housing, expanding minimum ten tenancies. I think we need more rent tenancies five, ten years in this country. Rent caps, getting rid of HMOs. HMOs are effectively turning these buildings, which should be flats and houses and co-ops, turning them into effectively machines that just extort value from their tenants. Uh, and I, I think if you really are serious about addressing the mental health crisis in this country, you have to talk about the housing crisis. You have to. You have to, because it's the number one need. I got somebody in my reply saying, oh, first world problems. Absolutely not. Shelter is not a first world problem, my friend. A sense of meaningful community and relationships with other people is not a first world problem. It is expensive to be poor. And one example of that is when you have to move every 12 months because you have to pay the removal costs, you have to get time off work, you sometimes need to buy new furniture because something breaks. Again, 
people watching this know that story, but it's something that's really lost on much of our political media class, Michael. Really, you know, uh, Andrew Marr, he lives, I think, 40 minutes from, from, from where he has to work. He basically walks there uh, at the BBC. You know, many of these people have never even rented, or if they did, it was briefly as students, and they really don't get the state of the housing market in this country and how it is destroying people. It is destroying people. And so for me, getting out of that situation, you know, I'm not going to adopt the I'm all right, Jack attitude. It's about, wow, this is so screwed up. And it's actually relatively easy to remediate through a bunch of measures I've already, already said. Uh, and the crying shame is that, you know, where are the politicians? Where are the leading politicians? Other than the previous Labour leadership saying, this is what we're going to do. I've not heard anything positive from the Labour Party or from Conservative politicians about this. It's always build more houses. Well, you can build more houses, and that's great. But if the price of housing is going up, and it is going up, I think in the last 12 months, the average house went up to like 12, 13, 14%, then that doesn't help anybody. You know, so yes, of course, we need more, more houses being built, but we need a fundamental change in the housing that's already there, like I say, through things like rent caps and, and minimum tenancies. I mean, the article was really good. And I mean, it's one of the things I find so frustrating about the way we talk about mental health within neoliberal capitalism because whatever situation we live in whatever system we live in i'm sure in communist systems you also have people who are struggling with mental health but there is so much i mean it should be low-hanging fruit we'd have so much fewer mental health problems if people didn't have to worry about paying rent didn't have to worry about getting getting kicked out of their house didn't have to worry about feeding their kids and this is all perfectly manageable you know you, you don't have to have some uh, or you, you shouldn't have to have some sort of revolutionary communist system that's just Social democracy, give people who want affordable rent, affordable rent. And yeah, that, then we can just stop all of these campaigns. We've got Prince William saying, oh, let's talk about mental health. How about we just give people somewhere to live, which has some security where they can build some community and where they're not terrified they're going to be, be, be kicked out all the time. It, it shouldn't be that complicated. As I say, you can check out that article and the article by Rivka Brown about the the renters who have in a rare um, instance, beat their landlord on navaramedia.com. Our final story tonight. You may remember this distressing video going viral in 2018. <laughs> You saw Jamar Hijazi, then 15, being pushed to the ground and threatened with drowning. Hijazi and his family had come to the UK as refugees from Oms in Syria. It was obviously a horrible welcome for a schoolboy fleeing war. It was made worse when Stephen Yaxley Lennon, otherwise known as Tommy Robinson, made a Facebook video claiming Jamal was not innocent and violently attacks young English girls in his school and that he had, quote, beat a girl black and blue, unquote. Jamal Hajizi claimed that Yaxley Lennon's video led him to be subject to death threats and extremist agitation. And this week, he successfully sued the far-right activist for libel. Mr. Justice Nicklin um, found that, as was entirely predictable, the claimant became the target of abuse, which ultimately led to him and his family having to leave their home and the claimant to have to abandon his education. The defendant is responsible for this harm, some of the scars of which, particularly the impact on the claimant's education, are likely to last for many years, if not a lifetime. 
Yaxley Lennon had fought the case um, on the grounds that what he had said was true, or his claim was that what he said was true. This was rejected by the judge. The judge said, I am satisfied that if the claimant had behaved so repeatedly in the abusive manner alleged, including to members of staff, then this would have been recorded in the claimant's school records. There is no trace of any such behavior by the claimant in these records. On the contrary, his behavioral record is overwhelmingly positive. So he's saying Tommy Robinson's claims do not stack up, and they also caused an incredible amount of harm. He said the language used in the videos was calculated to inflame the situation. Robinson has been ordered to pay damages to Hijazi of £100,000. He is also liable to pay his legal fees, which the BBC reports were around half a million pounds. Tommy Robinson has since declared bankruptcy. Aaron, this is obviously you know, a horrible story. The consequences of, of Tommy Robinson sharing those lies, incredibly horrible. You know, you're a 15-year-old kid. You're, you've already been bullied um, by people in a, in a country you've just moved to after fleeing civil war. Then you get death threats from far-right activists because Tommy Robinson has made up stuff about you on, on, on Facebook. This ruling here, though, I mean, obviously you can't turn back time, but it does seem to have damaged Tommy Robinson financially. And do you think that this far-right fog is now a busted flush? There was a period in time you know, mm. a couple of years ago, three years ago, four years ago, where people were seeing him as a, a variable in, in British politics, someone who people saw had had a, a following, potentially sometimes overstated, but he got lots of views on, on YouTube, etc. Do you think this is the end of him? Do, do you think we can now say, yes, there, there are threats from, from the far right in Britain, but Tommy Robinson is not one of them. He's over. The payout to the family is £100,000. I don't think that touches what's happened to them. I don't think that goes anywhere near compensating them. <clears throat> on the other hand... Tommy Robinson hasn't even got that, then what difference does it make? As I understand it, their legal costs are also around half a million pounds. So Robinson also would have to pay that. Um, he was already in financial trouble before this. Again, as I understand it, you know, um, I, I, I don't want to say things that aren't, aren't true because I don't want to do what Tommy Robinson's done. But from, from what has been said in the media, what's been written in the media, marital problems and so on and so forth. And what really, like you say, what really hammered him was before this it was changes to the facebook algorithm because that's what really took away his his prominence and his profile the fact that he was blacklisted effectively from twitter from facebook from instagram you know without social media he hasn't got any means to sell his product which is hate uh, which is himself and so he, he was a busted flush before this uh, but i do really feel sorry for the family because i don't think a hundred thousand pounds such the size i really don't um, the guy, the, this young kid had to leave school. It's obviously had a massive impact on his education, his mental health. This has been going on for more than a year. His family's already probably, they've probably all got PTSD from leaving Syria, fleeing civil war. I think it's appalling. I think it's really, really appalling. You know, I think, I think Tommy Robinson should be doing prison time personally. I, and I'm a prison abolitionist. I have no problem with Tommy Robinson going to prison, believe me. So uh, I, th I think, I don't think it's a sufficient punishment. I really, really don't, Michael. Um, and I'm, maybe some parts of the left might disagree with me for that. I really don't. What he did was so hateful and disgusting to, to people who'd been through so much, and now he's saying he can't pay for it. I think what you say there is 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 very sensible, though. It, it does seem surprising that this kind of thing doesn't give you get you get you time, right? Because for me, this seems like inciting racial hatred, and clearly that's what happened. And I would have thought, especially this is about a minor, this is about a 15-year-old. It seems surprising to me that it's just a, a financial response. 
I think at this time, probably Tommy Robinson has has less financial backers than he once did. But you know, a couple of years ago, three years ago, he could have presumably called in money from he had sort of far right backers um, in North America. Potentially that 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 moment is over, and he has declared bankruptcy. But I, I think you're right. It does seem like he he's this seems like a light punishment from my perspective, although a victory um, for the kid involved. Aaron, your final thoughts on this story? Yeah, I mean, he, his big financial backer came from Canada. There's a gentleman called Ezra Levant, who's financed a bunch of alt-right media, and he was expanding over here. Uh, I suppose one sort of one sort of counter-argument would be, yes, Tommy Robinson was huge in 2017, 2018. He was finding a huge audience. I remember in 2018, before he got banned, some of the analytics were just deeply disturbing. You know, on Facebook, Tommy Robinson was reaching a bigger audience than Facebook, um, than Labour, the Tories, Jeremy Corbyn, Momentum, Boris, you know, Boris was Theresa May back then basically all combined. Um, so on the one hand, you know, that yes, the algorithm screwed him. But at the same time, Mike, we have to remember that in this country in 2017, we had a, a high watermark for socialist politics. It just goes to show how politically volatile that moment was, really, uh, both on the left and the right. And it was very much a case of, you know, this, the center ground of politics, the common sense was up for grabs. You know, has that changed significantly? I I do think it's I, I do think it's changed, but I, I also think many of those questions are settled. I think many of the parts of the sort of economic agenda of of of, of Corbyn and McDonald are now broadly the consensus of the public. I think the Tories have to at least acknowledge that. And I think that ultimately on on the immigration stuff, you know, the, the left lost big time, big time, big time, and it expended huge amounts of capital because of chasing a second referendum. Tommy Robinson didn't win, but I think many of his viewers, his supporters, you know, we, we did end up with the government and a set of policy outcomes that they are absolutely overwhelmingly pleased with. Mm, a very sober note to end tonight's show. Aaron Bastani, it's been a pleasure as always speaking to you this Friday night. It's been my pleasure, Michael. I just want to say one more thing. With the merch, so the person who got their two T-shirts, I'm wearing my Navarro Media T-shirt here. Here you go. Uh, organic. Trade union labor, the cooperative which does the printing, it's all, you know, it's all incredibly ethically sourced. So if you want the most ethical t-shirts and tracksuit bottoms that are at a good price, you know, Navarro Media is the one. That was a very important point. Do check out that shop. The merch is really good at the moment. For now, um, thank you for your super chats. Thank you for your comments. Thank you so much. If you are a regular donor, we'll be back on Monday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.